This is Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast. Eldorado bonus tracks, listener comments, album facts, and outtakes. I'm Eric Paul Johnson. And I'm Eric Winsensen. So for the newbies who haven't listened to past episodes, this is our bonus tracks episode for Eldorado. And what a bonus tracks episode is, is we read listener comments and reply to them, give album facts, we'll give our thoughts on the album, shout outs to people who've donated to the show, thank you very much. And outtakes from the episodes where we covered the songs from this last album. So, uh, let's just get right to the comments. Let's get it on! John Henry Leeser III says, That was the album that made me a lifelong fan. That's the album that would do it. Yes, it is. Corey Gomel wrote, Yes, it seemed a natural back in the 70s for ELO to add an orchestra in the studio. What were they waiting for? Well, the band name. Electric Light Orchestra was not meant to sound cool, if it ever did. It was a description of the band's sound. Light Orchestra meant not a full orchestra, like light beer. But the sound they did have, the violins and cellos, they wanted to be hooked up like electric guitars. They wanted to amplify, thus electric. I guess they could have been called the Amplified Light Orchestra, but that would not have sounded nearly as cool. A-L-O? As for an even more complete description, The band name could have been called the Electric Light Orchestra and Rock and Roll Band, but that doesn't roll off the tongue that easily. To keep this very descriptive and geeky name somewhat hidden in plain sight from the public, the band incorporated the other, more familiar definition of the word light and used an electric light bulb on the cover for their first two albums. They used a light bulb that looked like the GE light bulb, font and all, designed by John Cahey? Kihi at United Artists as the band's logo until the arrival of the more famous spaceship graced the cover of the band's sixth studio album. The light bulb disguised the meaning so well that even I, Mr. ELO, did not immediately pick up on the meaning. I am way too ashamed to admit how long it took me to realize this. I never thought of this. Well, I am today years old. To see the name as that, I always thought electric light. It was the late 60s, early 70s. Light shows were in laser things were getting all part of uh, into the concert uh, scene of rock music and, and that kind of stuff. So I just thought, electric light, it's, it's everything's going electric. And then the orchestra part, well, yeah, they want to put the classical into the rock music. I never once thought light orchestra, like just a, a few instruments. So it's, it's a first for me. And also, I always did think electric light orchestra sounded like a cool name. Yeah, I never got the part of it being a light orchestra either. I was always thinking that they specifically said electric light and then threw an orchestra. That way they're saying that it's a rock band with strings. I always thought that that was kind of the point of the name was rock band with strings with adding all those words together. Yeah, I guess there's only one way to find out for sure. Jeff Lynn or Bev Bevan or Roy Wood, if you happen to be listening. You were the guys who started it. Call the telephone line voicemail, 623-850-3375. 
Uh, well, Jeff lives in America. As for Roy and Bev, look up the country code for the United States. And, and call and tell us. Is Electric Light Orchestra a rock and roll thing with concerts and lights? Or is it a not-so-full orchestra meeting? Give us a call. I expect we'll hear from them next week. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll be checking those messages. Now for Can't Get It Out of My Head, Nicole Davison says, This is the song that forever holds such a special place in my heart. And it holds a special place in my head. Because as I said in that one episode, the crowbars and javelins through people's heads thanks to Jonathan Brandmeier. My brain hurts! Stacy Reed wrote, Anyone that hears this song and does not instantly love it is out of their head! I, I would have to agree. It's a stone-cold, friggin' beautiful song. And Christina Leppert-Smith says, It's my favorite album of ELO. Rhonda Goodall, I love the cover. My favorite movie. You see, <laughs> this is something that bugs me. And I don't know why it bugs me so much, but it bugged me. Uh, when I read in Bev Bevan's book about the cover, an executive from the label here in America it was Sharon Osbourne, or the future Sharon Osbourne, said, oh, you guys are going to love this cover. Come right over and here, I'll show it to you. Look, and here's the cover. Don't you love this? And Jeff and Bev were like, this stinks. What the hell is this? So they hated the cover. And eventually they figured out, or somebody told them, or I think it was Sharon who told them, oh, it's from The Wizard of Oz. This is one of the most famous movies here in America. People love this movie. They're going to buy this album. This cover is going to help sell this album. And Jeff and Bev were like, I, sure, whatever. The Wizard of what? And what bugged me about this, I don't know why it got under my skin so much, is how can they not know about The Wizard of Oz? It's one of the best damn movies ever made ever. I despise musicals, but I love The Wizard of Oz. And then to add to it, in Bev's book, he says... The, I guess it's a cult movie in America. I'm just kind of like, no, it's not a cult movie. It's one of the greatest movies ever. It's not Reefer Madness or, or, or Rocky Horror Picture Show where only a few people saw it and like only some weirdos or art freaks or people who got bonged out of their gourd to watch the movie watch The Wizard of Oz. Everybody knows about The Wizard of Oz. How did you go almost 30 years of your lives without ever seeing The Wizard of Oz? What is wrong with England or the BBC that they don't show The Wizard of Oz every single year? Well, they don't like to torture people. <laughs> so you hate The Wizard of Oz? I hate that movie. <laughs> I absolutely hate that movie. You are. I'd rather watch Reefer Madness a million times, especially <laughs> since you can't see half of what's going on in Reefer Madness if you've seen original print of it. Lighting people, um, you can go out and just buy a few flashlights, light the scene. But anyway, yeah, Wizard of Oz is... Uh, even as a kid, I couldn't stand that movie. It just... Uh, all the damn singing and all that in it, it was absolutely horrible. And I never understood how that thing became a classic. Well, that's because you're a soulless, horrible monster. I guess so. Yeah, no, when I saw the cover, yeah, I, I... That's the thing, is I always wondered what in the world The Wizard of Oz had to do with what the music was on the album. Mm -hmm. Other than trying to obtain some sort of other world type of thing. But, yeah, otherwise, yeah, it, it never really made too much sense to me. I mean, I can kind of get it. The album's about a dreamer and the bulk of 
the color parts of The Wizard of Oz take place in a dream world, so I can see that, although it's not the dream world that the uh, dreamer on the album goes through. But if you want to uh, see something that was kind of influenced by the book of Wizard of Oz and some of its plotting, there's this wonderful Sean Connery movie called Zardoz that uh, I would recommend that everybody watch at least once in their lives just to just stare at the screen and go, WTF is going on here. All right, I got to see this now. Yeah, it's it's the one where you've seen him in a diaper. <laughs> oh, that one. Yes. That internet meme. And with, a, with a giant floating head. <laughs> All right, I got to yes. I gotta see this now. Yes, you definitely do have to see that at least once in your life just to kind of experience it. Yes, yes. Whether you like it or not, you just have to kind of sit there and go, okay, now I think I've seen everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to see this now. But it is influenced by William Baum's novel in some ways, so... Are there any singing munchkins? There are no singing munchkins. Hmm. There are a bunch of mortals who are afraid of having sex. <laughs> okay. Any, <laughs> any nudity? Oh, lots of it. Oh, I'm so there. Lots of it. It's not Sean Connery nudity, is it? Nope, even though you get to see enough of Sean Connery if you're into that. Keep in mind, Sean Connery, when he made this movie in 1970, was actually older than us. And he still looked better than us. That's true. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm a 400-pound hunk of burning love. Anyway, enough with your man crush. <laughs> Renee Koffel Westwood, my favorite album. It's a damn good album, yeah. Brian Morris, great podcast, guys. Quick suggestion. Would you consider recording a summary episode for each album before going into the individual songs? A um, couple reasons why n no. We kind of do that with the bonus tracks episodes when we finish an album. And the other reason is, as much as I like Mission Log, a Star Trek Roddenberry podcast, they do this annoying thing where cover each episode, and when they finish a series, and before they get to the next series, they do like three or four supplemental podcasts that have nothing to do with what's coming up or what they just saw. It's Star Trek related, but it's other Star Trek stuff. And lately, they've been jamming these in even during seasons that they're covering, and it's frustrating to me. Lately, I've just been skipping them because I just want to hear the episodes about Star Trek episodes that they're covering. And I don't want to do that and test people's patience. You know, this is a song-by-song song podcast. I would like it to go song-by-song and not song by song by song. And this one episode here where we talk about the, the album. And then this other episode here where we talk about the songs that are on the album and the album that we're talking about. So it's just, I like to keep these things moving right along. We're not getting paid for this, so there's no reason why we should drag this podcast out for 20 years or something. So that's why I don't really do a, a summary episode for each album. We, we already right. do one. We, we basically cover it in the bonus episode, yeah. so that yeah, we're so I don't really think we have to do an entire separate episode just to do a summary of the album. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. So and also, it's the future. If you want to know what songs are, we're gonna cover, Wikipedia is a two-second Google search away, and you can get the track listing there. Life has gotten so much easier here in the future. We've progressed a long way since the turn of the century. And the next one is from Ira Leboff. You didn't mention this, but I heard a nine-minute or so version of the songs from El Dorado without vocals. The can't-get-it-out-of-my-head part is really beautiful. I love listening to this song without the vocal. 
Is that on a bootleg or on a bonus track off of, of a CD or something? We didn't get to that one because we're going in release order. And that one didn't okay. come out until the 2001 Special Edition release. So oh, okay. we'll get to that one sometime in March or early April 2021. So stick around for another two and a half years. Is that right? I believe that's okay, right. Okay, so that'll be, that'll be well into Trump's second term. Okay. I'd, oh, dear God. Hey, we're talking about El Dorado is all about dreams. Now we're getting into nightmares. And so. now we're in the nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are. Let's stay away from politics, though. It's music. Yep. Next up is Boy Blue. Pam Van Allen says, Pizzicato is the term for plucked strings that are ordinarily bowed. I agree completely with what you said about the increase in Jeff's confidence being the reason for the drastic change in how he produced his vocals from On the Third Day to El Dorado. Yeah, I never knew what that term was for plucking the strings. I just thought it was for plucking. Pam has helped... The podcast serve its purpose by teaching people and helping us all learn. Right. And then there's turplucking, which would be when the turkey runs across the cello. <laughs> it must have been during those early tour years with Roy Wood uh, for, for ELO. When they would, uh, <laughs> exactly. Drag the turkey across the cello. Oh, poor turkey. Bad enough for those poor cellos, but the turkey too. True. Yeah. Jane White said, My goodness, that takes me back. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Happy to do so. And Johnny Camarena, this is fantastic. I love it. I'm going to save it among my precious treasures. Thank you very much. Your work is a gift to my ears. Well, thank, thank you very much. I, I, I always, always glad to hear that, even if I stammer about it. <laughs> True. And I'm glad that you liked us much more than cats. Yes. <laughs> Although I don't really know if that's too hard to do, but then again, I hate Broadway musicals, so... I don't like this! I don't like this at all! Pete Dix! <laughs> Restraining jokes in my head. Sorry. <laughs> sure yeah, alright, okay, let's try that again without the laughter. <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard them all at this point. Pete writes, great song. Yes, Boy Blue is a pretty good song. Bogdan Upon says... Boy Blue is, for me, in top three from the album El Dorado. Doug Payton, I listen to it, the podcast, and highly recommend it. Well, good. Tell all your friends to highly recommend it. And review us on iTunes, because the more reviews we get, the more attention it gets from iTunes, and the more it'll be seen by people, and the more listens we'll get. Maybe we'll attract advertisers, and we'll get lots of money, and we'll get decent uh, recording equipment, and then the hookers and blow. That comes with success. A cheerful change from the humdrum morning fair. And next up, we have some guy with an awesome last name, Andre <laughs> Torok, which sounds like somebody who I would fight with between two piles of skulls, as <laughs> our tribes look on. Andre Torok, the single edit for the USA is a little too edited for my liking, in my honest opinion. Yeah, I'd uh, have to agree. Oh, that's honest? I always thought that was in my humble opinion. I thought it was in my honest opinion. It could be either one, I guess. I really don't know how the kids talk today with their text lingo. Welcome to the exciting world of HIP. For English-speaking people who want to talk to and be understood by hipsters, beatniks, juvenile delinquents, and the criminal fringe. For Laredo Tornado... Ken Keenan said, great song. And Miko Kangasharvi says, 
I've just found this amazing podcast, and since last weekend, I've been catching up. On the third day, now done. There's so many things I haven't known about, though I've been a hardcore fan for 28 years. Thank you, guys. Well, you're welcome. It's good to know that we're doing our job and serving the purpose of the podcast of helping people learn even more about ELO. I mean, I've been listening to ELO since the mid-70s, and I decided I'm going to start collecting ELO in June or July 1983. So I've been a hardcore fan for longer than you, and I'm still like, I I, I never knew that about ELO. Who knew? So, yeah, we're all learning together. Wow, infotainment. On November 11th, I went through my Facebook memories, just happened to do it, and saw that I had posted uh, my question about should I do an ELO podcast? Would anybody actually listen? Does anybody want to co-host it with me? So uh, that's when the idea was posted. It was probably hatched and in my head a couple of days earlier. Um, And just thinking, is anybody other than my friends going to listen to this? I get more than like 20 listens a week. I thought if I do this, if I get myself into this, because once I start, I'm not going to be able to stop until we get to the last song, because that's just how I am. So I just wondered if anybody listening to anybody would care. Mike Faber said, and we are so glad that you did. The wife and I love listening weekly to the show. So, there's two listens in one sitting that uh, the show gets. One of those listens doesn't get recorded in the numbers because it's, you know, they're probably listening on the same computer. But but if you want to like add to the numbers and make us feel like we're actually doing more, maybe she can like listen later on her other computer or phone or something. So, it gets a one extra listen. And then Judy Weinstein Faber says that's what she said. I uh, no, it says uh, what he said. Right. Mike's wife said what he said. People are loving this. This is great. I mean, they must be. We're cleared 16,000 listens, so uh, it's uh, good to know that I'm not completely wasting my time. Yeah, it is rather surprising. I think we found a little niche here. My head was in two places when I came up with the idea. Uh, One of them was, only my ELO-loving friends are going to listen to this thing, Uh, so, you know, maybe 20 listens a week. But another part of my head was like, There are no ELO podcasts. We will be cornering the market. We will have a monopoly on ELO podcasts. And ELO has been on the resurgence for the last few years. So, of course it'll be popular. But, you know, I think that about so many ideas that I have. This is the one. This is the one that will pay off. And then nobody pays attention to it. And it dies a quiet, lonely death. That's why I was like, it'd be nice for a few friends. And also in the same head, this is going to rocket you to fame. Or not. Or it could. Probably not. But it might. Well, we're almost internet famous. Now it's time for us to just say a bunch of racist, sexist stuff and never be heard from again. End it all again. (laughs) Starts to come out about all the times that I've been naked around women. In my defense, I was dating each one of them at the time, so... They just didn't know it. Please forgive me, but the lady says to tell you that you are creeping her out. So the poor boy. We got a lot of comments on this because when we recorded the episode, uh, I was certain that we would fall way short of our 10-minute minimum. So I posted on the ELO sites, Hey, people, tell us what you thought of poor boy and we'll put it in the episode. But because much like Jefflin is a musical genius, I'm a podcasting genius and found ways to pad out the episode so that it reached... 10-ish minutes. But we did get a whole lot of comments about it. First off is Dave Southern. 
I love the way this song builds up to a finish and then stops suddenly. Then when you turn the record over, the first song on side two starts with the closing chord from the last song on side one. That truly is a perfect album. I had never noticed that, that it does that. Neither had I. Sasha Hendel says, it, my favorite El Dorado song. Kit Jones, although he has umlets, I believe those are called, over his O. So would that be... I'm trying to think of words that have umlets on it, and I'm thinking of Motley Crue. So would he be Kit Jones? Um, Eunice. Eunice, okay. Yeah. Kit Eunice. Yep, I think he's just trying to be metal with them, though, so it's probably just Jones. It probably. <laughs> the second ELO song I ever heard. It was the B-side yeah. of my older brother's copy of Telephone Line. Then Tim Barber, he says, really enjoyed Kelly singing it on Fusion. He posted a video clip with that. I guess it was a TV show way back when. Okay. Ken Keenan wrote, Great song, great vocal, and orchestration. About Robin Hood, I believe. At the 235 mark or so, I hear what could have been the inspiration for the White Stripe song, Seven Nation Army. <laughs> What do you think? Well, I think I forgot to listen to Seven Nation Army. Uh, so did I. I was going to do before for tonight. Corey Gomo says, Ooh, that bridge. Wow. It's what made me fall in love with this song. I kind of wish it was developed into his own song. And then Jeff sounds drunk on the very next line. The dancing girls and the open fires, the wine that flows like water. I guess on purpose, due to the line itself, Jeff does show a little of his vocal range each time he sings Greenwood. Well... Considering that the way Jeff sung on this album to match what was going on in the dreams in the song, it was probably on purpose for him to sound drunkish. Sasha Hendel, oh yes, Poor Boy was my favorite song on El Dorado. Luis Ippolito says, thank you for posting this great track. Always one of my favorites. I think the first time I ever heard it was a B-side of a single, Telephone Line, I think. I went out and got El Dorado shortly after. And yes, that is the B-side of Telephone Line. Mm-hmm. Brian Morris, you guys are doing such a great job in support of an amazing band. Well, thank you. And you can support us by giving us tons of money. Or just keep listening and tell other people to listen. Exactly. Check out our Patreon and our Kickstarter. Yeah, when we start the Kickstarter. Probably in February is my goal. Emily Valaro says, Bev is gorgeous. She's really got a crush on him, especially his belly button. Damn, I wish I was your lover. MJ Folds, sweet maid Marion, don't you do me no wrong. And she doesn't. She really doesn't because she is mentioned in such an awesome song. I bloody love this tune. Even the snippets you played on the podcast got me excited and made me want to listen to it again. Even if Jeff does sing Poor Boy to sound like Poo Boy. Jeff, please play this album live. You neglect so many of your classics. Um, sure. I know the thing now is for old bands to go on tour performing their most famous album. I think Styx finished up uh, with a Grand Illusion tour just playing that album. Yeah, this would be a fun album to do live. Doug Payton says, You guys are making me want to actually buy El Dorado. Never knew how good it was. Well, yeah, go buy El Dorado. Yes. Of course, my suggestion would be go to the record store, find an original copy from 1974, and enjoy it the way it was originally meant to be. Yes. So, are you listening, Jeff Lynn, and Epic Records, or whoever holds the ELO catalog for release? We're helping you out. We're making people want to buy ELO albums. 40 years after the albums have come out, we're making people buy them. 
you should hire us to like do this podcast so that'd be great seventy thousand dollars a year would easily pay off my student debt in, in a year so there we go just a thought mj folds it says it is your birthday today so happy birthday to ftm i am not sure if i have asked before but i assume you guys record separately it sounds like it are you quite far apart and how did you meet um this was in november so yes the idea was hatched in november 2017 we do record separately I'm in southwestern Illinois. Eric's in one of the surrounding cities of Phoenix. Be Tempe. Tempe. Marie and Karen are also in Phoenix, so I'm the only one who isn't in Arizona. And then the way we met, well, it was a story of how bodies could be imprisoned, but hearts could not. It was very touching, yes. Yes, and how passion could overcome even the darkest, thickest of walls. The bond between the two men was unspoken, but unbreakable. I can't wait to actually. Hear this no, thing. we just met in college. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It, it, I, we were. On, I was on the uh, newspaper at a community college, and he came in with some cartoons. And I think I was working the entertainment desk at that particular point. So we needed cartoons. His cartoons looked similar to Doonesbury and Bloom County, and he had some talent. So I said, "Yeah, why the hell not?" <laughs> <laughs> why the hell not is usually how I get most of my jobs. People say, I'm sure, why the hell not? Well, if we're going to go through the cast, Karen, our end credits voice, met her in high school when I was 15, 1984. A year later, we were girlfriend for a month, and then there was a 10-year dry spell. And then in 2001, we got back together. We tried the girlfriend-boyfriend thing again. It was a catastrophic failure. And after years of bitterness and not talking to each other, we made nice, and now she's a wonderful friend, one of my better friends. Eric would be October 91. I had a newspaper class, and the advisor for the newspaper found out, oh, you're a cartoonist? You should come in and talk to the arts editor about getting your comic strip in our newspaper. It's like, ah, hell yeah, I'm there. And it turned out to be Eric. And in October 1992, Song Facts voice, Marie, also met her at the same college, and I'm a really shy person but she was one of the rare people who I felt really like instantly comfortable with and didn't feel like all withdrawn around her and she's been a fantastic friend for a very long time what four or five years how long ago was 1992 uh yeah you mean how long ago it feels 1992 was or how long ago it actually was why don't we just move on and not try and dwell on that yeah I'm, I'm thinking a 91 yeah I didn't know it was way back in 91 yeah God, who in the world gives 19-year-olds responsibility? Anyway. <laughs> Especially you. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no, we're doomed. But we will move on here to Mark Van Heesvik, and he says, The song that made me notice ELO, it was a single in the Netherlands in the spring of 1975. After first listen, I thought, wow, that's something completely different. I became fan not long after that, and I still am today. For me, Poor Boy is still a gem and great to sing along with. Moving on to Mr. Kingdom, Barry Evan Lund said, My absolute favorite song from ELO. And Pam Van Allen says, Marie has a nice voice. She really does. I really like her doing song facts. Sort of like the warm-up before we get to the main act of Eric and Eric. Yeah, no, it's nice to have another voice other than us on there. Yes, yes, exactly. That's what I was going to say, but I didn't want to sound like an ass to you or me. Simon Arnold. What facts? Well, Simon, 
We did give some facts about Mr. Kingdom. Usually we get them from the Jeff Lynn database. It's an internet site and the guy who runs it, or guys, it's amazing how much effort he has put into this thing. And I'll also check out Wikipedia and some other stuff. But sometimes there really isn't much that you can find online about certain ELO songs, especially ones that are buried album tracks. So sometimes song facts, there's a lot to pick from, and I have to cut and edit some good stuff out of there because I don't want the entire episode to go on for like 20 minutes or something. And sometimes there's really not much you can find, and Mr. Kingdom was one of them. So, But if you find any facts that we didn't discover, call the telephone line voicemail, 623-850-3375. Leave a voicemail. We'll play it on our bonus tracks episode. Write a reply to the posts that when I link a new episode to any of the tons of ELO and podcasting pages I'm on, if you find something that we don't, let us know, and we'll include it in the bonus tracks episode. Mark Herring says, I kind of picked up from your production values on the podcast that you come from a professional radio career. What with your audio drop-ins... I figured you guys aren't quite there yet. However, you are experimenting with the advertisement for the novel based on El Dorado. Maybe someday you might get some money from advertising. You're probably not there yet, but keep going. You're doing absolutely great. I always look forward to Saturdays when I can listen to your show. You squarely defined your demographic, and I think in the long run you'll profit from it. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, and I believe... We actually have got a little bit of actual advertising for the show, but I think you have to be in Colorado to hear it. I think so, and uh, they stopped advertising. I don't know if it was for a limited time or if it I, it's through Podbean. I don't know how it works, although I did know that we didn't make any money from it. So if it, if the advertisement okay. was heard or, or not. Um, as for coming from a professional radio career, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, the closest I've ever come to working in, well, I don't know if I want to say professional, broadcast radio was when I was on my college station a couple years ago and I had a regular show. But other than that, no, I have not had a professional radio career. I've always wanted one, and I used to do a podcast for about six years called the Eric Paul Johnson Radio Troller Program that I would do as in the style of a radio show. But I've paid attention to radio. I have radio idols and admire them and kind of pull from them for my inspiration for how to do things. And it's good to know that I've got everybody fooled into thinking, yes, I'm a professional radio guy. Or was. Well, how about you not be too humble and admit Eric Paul is the one that does all the production work on the uh, podcast. I just kind of show up and give my opinions and read a few things. He does all the actual production work, which I might have patience with if I had three to four hours to sit down and do stuff. So he's been doing podcast work for quite a while and knows what to do. Plus, I think our radio, I, I do a radio show. I've been doing a radio show for about 12 years now, an internet radio show on maxradio.ca. But we both have different, I'd say, influences. He's more influenced by Casey Kasem and people like that where I'm more influenced by some local Arizona radio hosts like Bill Haywood and Dave Pratt, where it's very cut and dry and you don't do the whole radio DJ type thing. I'm more influenced by Jonathan Brammeyer and, and Dave Otto. I stammer because these are names nobody out there knows, unless they're our friends. Uh, Dr. Demento, people who make listening to the radio fun. And that was a beef that I had when I was at KJAC. 
the other kids who worked at the college station, they were free to do whatever they wanted. And mostly what they did was they play a few songs and then say, that was that song by that person, and play a bunch of songs. And I was just thinking, you have been given something that you will not get at a real radio station. They said you could do whatever you want, just don't swear or do anything that will get us in trouble with broadcasting regulations. And I would do whatever I wanted, and I had fun. But the other kids, they just introduced songs. And as for making money with this, I'm sure that'd be great. I'd love that. If I could just walk into my gig, my job, drop my pants, tell the boss to look at my ass as it walks out of this store for good, that'd be great. But we're not pulling in that kind of money yet. Maybe someday, hopefully. <laughs> okay, you're next. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if you, like your head was like just locked. Like There's so much to say to that, but I don't know what. Yeah. You are a sad, strange little man. So on to MJ Folds, who said, I enjoy this. I hadn't noticed the similarities to Across the Universe, but I think Mr. Kingdom was a much better song. I love it. Who was the girl you had giving the song information at the beginning? That was a nice touch. Uh, yeah, I never noticed the Across the Universe thing until I started looking up stuff for the song. It's a tough call, because I really do like Mr... Or I really do love Across the Universe and all the different versions that I've heard. Um by the Beatles, and I really do love Mr. Kingdom. Uh, it's, it's a toss-up which one I like more. I think maybe Mr. Kingdom, because I think there's more stuff going on with it, instead of just guitar and an echo voice and a small string section. Or was that a Mellotron? Mr. Kingdom seems a little bit more filled out, because I always thought Across the Universe sounded like demo recording. Yeah, it, it does. It's, it's kind of empty compared to Mr. Universe. And as for the girl, yep, that's Marie. Although I will slip and call her Lisa many times because that's what I've been calling her for 26 years. And yeah, I think it's a very nice touch. When we started recording episodes with her, uh, it seemed like it took forever to finally get to the episodes where she comes in because I was all excited about, this is going to be great. I love what she adds. We get a nice, pleasing female voice to counteract ours. You sing like a piece of chalk on a blackboard. Miko Kongasharv says, thank you for this episode. I have never noticed the similarity between Across the Universe and Mr. Kingdom. The chord structures seem to have much in common, but the vocal melody is still quite different, I think. Yeah, I think it's different enough to avoid a lawsuit. Definitely. Yeah. Helps to have friends in high places, too. Well, there's that. you got that going for him, too. Exactly. So moving on to Illusions in G Major, Pam Van Allen said, Madeline was quite averse to 10538 Overture as well. Those two songs have a similar time signature and are guitar driven. We can predict she isn't going to like poker. As for time signatures, you know music better than I do. But as I said in our introductory episode, I'm pretty much a, a rube. If a song makes me feel happy, I like it. I never notice. I don't see. I don't even know what time signatures are. But I'll just nod and say, uh huh. Now you can tell right there, friends, that he don't know nothing. As for poker, we'll find out in about three weeks if uh, Madeline likes it or not. At least when we record it. And MJ Folds says, "Great episode. I love this song." I love the brass on it, even if Jeff didn't like brass. One of my favorites. How did Madeline hate it? She might have just been in a bad mood that night. Or she's just antsy to get it over with and move on to other things that she wanted to do instead of my doofy little podcast. Maybe sometime in ten years we'll get back to it and I'll ask Madeline, what do you think of it now? Dad! <laughs> yeah. Well, let's not play these silly games. Honestly, I'm just not in the mood for it. Joe Ezzy, wow. How have I never heard of this podcast before? Thanks for sharing. 
Well, it's because we need a better marketing team. Because right now the marketing team is just me and anybody else who happens to share the link on their Facebook. So everybody out there, share the link. Tell lots of people. Give us a rating and review on iTunes. That will also help bump up the getting the word out. We don't have an advertising budget, so it's, it's really share the link on Facebook and Twitter and your social networking thingies. So on to comments about El Dorado, the song. Because it was accused of having satanic backwards messages. The tease line I wrote when I went on a Facebook posting blitz to plug the episode, uh, I wrote, keep a Bible nearby to fight off the powerful urge to worship Lucifer as we decode the satanic backwards message in El Dorado. A lot of people got the satire, the snarkiness of my post, but it kind of completely buzzed right by one person. Richie Gallagher said, are you mentally ill? Thanks for posting this so I know who to block. Well, yes, he is mentally ill, but still, you don't want to block him. I prefer eccentric. Sounds more dignified than mentally ill. That's true. Eccentric usually involves more cats, though. Um, when we get a house. Michael Lucas says, I think it was sarcasm. Yeah, Michael Lewis got it. Richard Gallagher replied, perhaps not enough context to resonate. Okay, well, everybody else got it, so I think there probably was enough context to resonate. Yes. I'm sitting here going, center yourself, center yourself. <laughs> Remember, <laughs> you've gone beyond this. <laughs> yeah. You're a nice guy now. Act like you got some smart now. Anyway, let's move on <laughs> before we... MJ Fold says, good one. Now I just want you to finish the album. You do well to go through it track by track, as I think this is the only album where it is best judged as one whole amazing piece. Other albums I might choose tracks here and there to put on my mp3 player, but I don't do that with this album as if I just heard one song. I would want to hear the next song, unless it was the last track. Then I would want to start the album again. I pretty much agree. It is. It does work as one whole album. That's. This is what I think sets this one apart from a lot of the um, ELO catalog. Is this is the one that you can just sit there and listen to the whole way through. Yeah. I mean, it really doesn't seem like here's a song. Here's a song. Here's a song. It does seem like a whole story, and each song is part of the big story of the album. And it really does work as one whole piece. And believe me, I hated separating El Dorado and El Dorado Overture. But, as it says in the title, it's a song-by-song song podcast, and Eldorado Overture is its own track. Mark Herring, excellent edit there in the song at the beginning of the episode. I was making my morning coffee listening to Eldorado, and I smiled to myself and thought, I heard what you did there. A perfect cut. Keep them coming. They're a Saturday morning tradition now with my coffee. I'd say it's good. We're part of somebody's habit. It's a routine. I like that. And yep. I was also impressed with that edit. And I hate to cut down the songs, but I only give myself a minute of the song to give a taste. And I also want to be able to, for people who've never heard the song, to kind of give them an idea of the song. So sometimes it's too much music, too much verse, verses before it hits the chorus. And I try and smoosh things down to give a, a feel for the song. But if you want to hear the whole song, they're all right there. Go out and buy them. Or YouTube but buy him. Jeff put the work into making this stuff. He should be paid. That's true. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yep. And Tony Peterson says, Thank you. I just subscribed. I look forward to your insight. Well, thank you for subscribing. That You're the one we should be thanking in this particular case because we need a lot of more and more subscribers. 
we, we must dominate the world. I mean, every week we usually get to 200 to 300 listens a week, and that's, believe me, that's great. That's more listens than I've gotten to any other podcasts I've done. But there's got to be more than 200 to 300 people in the world who like ELO. So share the link, tell everybody, all that kind of stuff. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. I love you. Tim Beadle, ELO is Satanic Band. L-M-A-O. Yeah, that would make me laugh too, but Lucifer works in conniving, shifty ways. Of course he would pick what would seem like a harmless band like ELO to get his message out there. I'm wise to your schemes, Satan. You're not going to get me with ELO. There's a uh, YouTube reaction channel where it's a couple Christians that react to metal music. Mm-hmm. And they actually said something similar because there's a band called Ghost. They sound a bit like uh, Blue Oyster Cult. And their whole shtick is Satanism, even though it's basically a shtick. It's not, they're not really in Satan or anything, but it's their whole thing. Right. Yeah, but they made a point that said, yeah, if anybody was actually going to try and promote the devil and Lucifer and Satanism and everything, that's the type of music you want to do it in, not an extreme death metal where you're... You get a few thousand listeners. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You want it to be in something where people will actually turn it on and hum along with it. That's right. And there you go. ELO. Popular, hummable, great songs. Now I feel like eating babies. Thanks a lot, Satan and Jeff Lynn. Welcome to the fold. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Herring says... I vividly remember my mother calling me up back in 1982 and telling me that she heard that ELO used backward masking to spread satanic messages. Knowing that I was a hardcore fan since 1974, she was alarmed. I asked her where she ever got that idea. From PTL, pay the loot, I I mean, uh, praise the Lord TV. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's junk religious show. I told her that the band does use backward masking for non-satanic messages, and I told her what they said. She calmed down and let it go. Ugh. (laughs) And I'm sure that after a while she learned how valuable Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's religious advice was. Yeah. Reality hits you hard, bro. For El Dorado Finale, Alan Walker said, Regarding the debate of whether the dreamer finds the bliss of his dream world, or if he retreats into a psychotic state, e.g. Brazil, I have always interpreted the latter. Perhaps it's one of those Rorschach moments. But the minor chord and truncated epilogue telegraph the darker interpretation. It lacks the hope and mystery of the intro's same background effect. Um, yeah, I guess he's right. I never thought of that. I just thought it's a good dramatic way, in a very symphonic, classical way, to end a symphony. I never thought that, yeah, it represents that he found his dream world by secluding himself from the rest of humanity and just cutting himself off from the world. I can totally see that now. Well, that sound at the end of the case's closing sounds more like a door closing than anything else, so... There you go! That's a good excuse for them closing their cases. That's Maybe that's what Jeff can do. If you're listening, Jeff... That's what you can tell people from now on, even though there's already like a 45-year back history of you saying, yeah, they're closing their cases. Just do like other people do and pretend that never happened and just make up a new story. Oh yeah, that was on purpose. It was to simplify the door closing on the guy being left alone in the loony bit. So, there you go. Alternate facts. Alternate, exactly. Aaron Jansen says, on the topic of the Osmonds, being that you liked El Dorado, you might also like their concept album, The Plan. Probably would be the only Osmonds album that you'd find worth listening to. 
I'm willing to give it a try. Um, the Osmonds have never been high on my list of things to listen to, but it's, you know, what, 38, 45 minutes? Sure. I'll put it on when I got nothing else to do. I'm else. willing to let Eric Paul listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. I I created this podcast. I'm the one who opened myself up to listening to Osmond albums. So, um, yep. I, the only thing I'm ever going to listen to them is going to be Crazy Horses. That beginning and end of all my Osmonds listening. It always makes me laugh every time I hear that. These white, white, white good boys trying to be hard-ass heavy metal hard rockers. They almost pull it off. Uh, Donnie plays a mean synthesizer on that thing. People call the telephone line voicemail. Oh yes, we got calls. Oh my god! 623-850-3375 Call now! Hello? Well, as you guys know, I listen to these things in bunches. This is Corey Gomel, Mr. ELO from Houston, Texas, and I just finished episode number 26, Day Tripper Live, and considering that ELO were the sons of the Beatles and how much uh, at times they do sound like the Beatles, like in Jeff's tribute to John Lennon during the time tour, I was always surprised to hear this version. It doesn't sound much like the Beatles. To me, it sounds a little bit more like a mess, and I know one of the Eric's in the podcast said that he was glad that they never did go into the studio and record this. Well, I'm kind of the opposite way there. I feel like if they did, it might have sounded a little better and less like a mess and probably even a little bit more like the original. Not that it has to be, but a little more Beatle-ish. Till next time, this is Corey Gomel. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, now we know how to pronounce his name. We've been getting it right, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you were the one who didn't really care for it much, and I just thought it was great. And I understand this takes time to go into a studio and record when you're just doing a cover. I think a, a studio version would have been better, because that's where Jeff is better at. Uh, it would have been more fun in the studio if they kept in the synthesizer little classical bits that they worked into the song. When you got no restrictions that live gives you, Especially in 1974, I think it would have been a better, more fun song to listen to. Yeah, I'm still kind of glad they didn't do it. It still would have been one cover too many. Oh, yes. Because it would have been almost right on the heels of Roll Over Beethoven, so it would have been, oh, okay, well, they, they're they a cover band with strings. Yeah. No. Which, uh, unfortunately, is what that whole live album kind of gives the idea of if you don't, didn't know their output towards that time. Yeah, I mean, that's the part of it that I would be against a studio version. They've already done covers. They did Roll Over Beethoven. There's In the Hall of the Mountain King. Showdown's kind of dangerously close to Grapevine. Ma 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 Bell is dangerously close to uh, that, um, what was it, uh, Slade? Something Crocus. Right. From uh, Motha Hoople. Yeah. Oh, right, Motha Hoople. So, and then on top of that, hey, look, we're doing a Beatles song, too. I could write my own stuff, but eh, let's do somebody else's. So, in that way, yeah, I'm glad they didn't go into a studio. Although, I, you know, fine for a B-side, because usually those are kind of throwaway. Here's just something to put on the back of this song. Yep, I think Corey makes that same point just coming up in his next message here. Hello, Eric's. This is Corey Gamel from Houston, Texas. I just listened to uh, episode number 27, 105.8 of your live and wanted to tell you that I do like this version. 
I agree with you guys in that the string section is much improved. The uh, rocking version of 105.38 Overture, much like the Queen's rocking version of We Will Rock You Live, but it does come from a very horribly titled album. <laughs> the Night Lights went out in Long Beach, and the uh, amazing thing about the live album is that I think maybe uh, less than 50% of the songs are Jeff Lynne songs on that thing, uh, with the, in all of the Mountain Kings, Great Ball of Fire, Rollover Beethoven, Day Tripper, there's probably the lowest amount of Jeff Lynne songs on any Electric Light Orchestra album. And as far as that moment in history where Guy got knocked on the head with Bev Bevan drumstick, I like to 1981 in Fort Worth, was fortunate enough to grab one of those big sticks. Luckily, I'm a better catcher than the guy in Seattle, and I did not get cracked in the head. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. First of all, you're a lucky pup that you got to see ELO live. That was the last time they toured. And I was 12. I don't think they came to Phoenix. I wouldn't have been able to afford to go anyway, because 12. And you lucky bastard that you have a Bev Bevan used drumstick. That's pretty freaking awesome. And that you didn't need stitches in acquiring it. Uh, this goes to show how dense I am. For years, I did like the Do Ya break in the live version of 105.38 Overture, and I thought the strings in it were a nice touch. It wasn't until after we had finished recording the episode for 105.38 Live, and I was editing it all together, that it hit me that while the rock band is playing Do Ya, the strings are playing the melody for 105.38 Overture. I... <laughs> it took me 33 years for that to finally... Oh! Oh, I get it now. Stupid! You're so stupid! Great podcast, guys. I just want to bring up a point here when talking about the Boy Blue episode. You mentioned, of course, that this was a line of demarcation, the Eldorado album from all previous work by Yellow, and that Jeff Lynn showed a lot of, how shall we say, confidence. Now, question. Two things changed, basically, in Yellow on this album. One was, of course, the addition of the symphonic orchestra. The second was this was the first album that had Lewis Clark in there helping Jeff arrange everything. Now, question, how much confidence did adding Lewis Clark into the mix give Jeff Lynn? Bye. First of all, if you never worked in radio or did any voiceover work, you have wasted your life. You have a fantastic radio voice. Did you ever do radio? Call us and let us know, because uh, you, you got a great voice. As for confidence, I definitely think it absolutely would have helped. I'm used to like doing my own thing, and I will be kind of like, maybe. But if I'm working with other people and they know what they're doing to help make what I'm doing even better, then my confidence in it does go up. Jeff is working with these people who know what they're doing and know how to make things sound great, then I'm sure it would have boosted up Jeff. I do think that gave him a lot more confidence because finally the music was probably sounding like it did in his head. Because I know the frustration of having something in your head and trying to either record it or put it down on paper or something and it just seems like like the Tenacious D song. It's not the best song in the world. This is just a tribute. <laughs> the best thing in the world was what was in your head while you were taking the shower. Mm -hmm. By the time you get out of the shower and get in front of the computer, it's, ah, oh, well, this is kind of what I had in mind. Yeah. So, but, yeah, so I think that's a lot. I think also, I was just telling Eric Paul before we started doing this, I just purchased a copy of the Graham Bonnet version of Whisper in the Night. And 
I think reason why that one sounds better than the original ELO version is because they actually had a professional arranger do the entire symphonic part in the background for that single. Somebody to arrange and conduct it and everything, rather than, hey, I've spent a little bit of time with these instruments, let's see what we can do. And the difference is quite huge. Oh yeah. And yeah, Jeff has said in interviews... That was the first song that um, I recorded that actually I heard this big string section playing along with for the first time. And it was uh, a real great thrill for me to hear all these strings playing this tune. Just very exciting moment, hearing that big orchestra strike up in the background. And now we have another telephone caller. Will you please pick up on line two? Hello, fellow podcaster. This is Tim Young of Deconstructing Comics and To The Bat Poles Podcasts. Being a fan of the excellent Something About the Beatles podcast, a few months ago I decided I was in the mood for something similar about ELO, so I happened upon your podcast. But it's taken me till now to catch up, because I listen to so many other podcasts. I wasn't very familiar with pre-Face the Music ELO, so I've gone back for those albums, and it's been cool to have your commentary on them. Eldorado is really interesting, and I'm having trouble kind of putting a pin on what exactly it is, but uh, I'm enjoying it. Uh, Looking forward to you getting to my favorite ELO album, New World Record. Thanks. Also, another really good voice. It's a good thing you're doing podcasts, because you have a great voice. And I'm also glad that you've found us, and you've stuck through listening to everything. Thank you for listening. Thank you for keeping listening. I'm glad that we've informed you. And as for a new world record, uh, it's one of the albums I can't wait to get to also. Spoiler alert, I really love that album. New World Record is one of my favorite pop albums of all time. I know there's still some some progressive on it, but yeah, it is it is a wonderful pop album, and I'm looking forward to getting to it as well. Because that's also, I think, it, it's a toss-up between Discovery and that one that uh, is my second favorite after El Dorado with them. So we'll get into a lot of that once we get to that album. Yeah, there are four ELO albums that I think are like just completely fantastic, and El Dorado and A New World Record are, are two of those. So, Not saying the other ones stink, I'm just saying, of the ELO discography, there are four that are just perfect fantastic. Midnight on the Water, a novel by Pam Van Allen, tells the story of Horace, a man with a bank job in the city, who escapes from his dreary, lonely life into an elaborate dream world of knights, shamans, and merry men. Based on the 1974 Electric Light Orchestra album, El Dorado, Midnight on the Water by Pam Van Allen is available at Amazon.com. Back to ELO. So, now that we've wrapped up El Dorado, do you hate this album? Of course I do not hate this album. I would love to give it five stars, but yeah, it still hovers around four to four and a half. Reason being is because, well, just a little bit on the second side. There's still good songs, but Nobody's Child and Mr. Kingdom are just not up to par with the rest of the album, really. And so that just brings it down just a notch. Keep in mind, if you're wondering what I would be comparing this to, I'm comparing this to stuff like Close to the Edge and Dark Side of the Moon and everything, so 
I'm not comparing this to the latest Ariana Grande album that's out there or something like that when I'm thinking of how I'm rating the music. I'm thinking of stuff that I grew up with and that has always been with me where El Dorado is something that I discovered later on in life. Mm-hmm. As for Dark Side of the Moon, I kind of would give that four and a half stars. It's like an almost perfect album, but um, great gig in the sky. It always... I, I, I don't like the screaming and the, the tune itself. I'm kind of... Eh? So that's the song where it's like, I'm going to skip it. And I didn't rip it from CD when I converted everything to MP3s, so I skipped that. As for Eldorado, out of one to five stars, I would give it 275 million jillion, kabillion zillion stars. To me, it is a perfect album. I first heard it when I was 15, and at the time I'd heard a huge chunk of ELO's discography by that point. I heard this and it was like, this is friggin' awesome i loved every song on this and i still do for me there is nothing on this album that makes me think just get through this song or this part because there's better stuff coming up it's a perfect album it's perfect as is for me yeah, and it's also an outlier with all the other Electric Light Orchestra albums. Nothing else they've ever done sounds like that, and they've made some good albums after this as well. But this is definitely the best Electric Light Orchestra album, in my opinion, and it, simply because it doesn't sound like a lot that came before it, and even though it sets some patterns for what would come after, it's still nothing that came after it tried to copy it. So it's just this very special moment in their history that stands out above everything else. These people were swelled to full enough to donate money to the podcast through PayPal, Miko Kangajarvi, Pam Van Allen, and Corey Gomel, and through our Patreon site, Frederick Skog and James Crow. If you'd like to donate, please, we'll always take cash. You can donate through PayPal using the email address eloftmpodcast at gmail.com or through our Patreon site, patreon.com slash elopod. El Dorado was the fourth studio album released by Electric Light Orchestra. Released in the United States in September of that year, following up by a release in the UK in October. In the United States, the album became the biggest seller that Electric Light Orchestra had had up to that time largely on the strength of the single Can't Get It Out of My Head. The album failed to chart in the UK, but later got up to number 38 as part of a three-album box set in 1978. Jeff Lynne began to work with Lewis Clark, co-arranging along with Richard Tandy a number of the songs using a full orchestra rather than just overdubbing the strings as he had done on the previous albums. This also did see a change in band membership as Mike Albuquerque departed during the recording of the album. Even though some of his bass parts are on the album, most bass parts were played by Jeff Lynne. Kelly Grucut joined the band and took over during the tour, but does not play on the album. The album reached the top 20 in the United States, getting up to number 16. In the UK, again, did not chart, but got up to number 38 in 1978 as part of Three Light Years, the box set. Australia, it made it up to number 40, but it did its best numbers in Canada, making it up to number 7. 
Classic Rock Magazine in 2010 included it in the 50 albums that built prog rock, while Rolling Stone, the biggest surprise being that Rolling Stone was never a fan of the Electric Light Orchestra or of progressive rock itself, it did rank them number 43 in the 50 greatest prog rock albums of all time. Everything else done? Okay. Unleash the outtakes. And they're off. Colorado Adventure. And then when you do, you end up like Guns N' Roses, where everything after that is kind of like, why? When did Guns N' Roses do a great album? (laughs) Appetite for Destruction. 1987, just because you hate heavy metal doesn't mean the rest of the world does. Yeah, and I despise Guns N' Roses. It's the music, and then you got to stick on top of that the voice of something that sounds like a cat with its tail caught in a vice screeching over it, so I I don't know. I always liked Appetite for Destruction. Never really understood why everybody said that Axel has a great voice, because there's so many metal singers that are so much better, but... um, But... Pure attitude and everything. Well, I think it's a credit to Jeff's musical genius because this album came out thanks to his dad. And thank you for Jeff's dad for being so blunt to push Jeff in this direction because his dad told him, you know why your records don't sell? Because your songs suck. That's basically what he said. (laughs) Um, I've got sound of Jeff Lynn telling the story. So Jeff said, so in Jeff's head, he thought, oh, yeah? And then from that came El Dorado. And Jeff's dad listened to it, and he said, you made this album for me, didn't you? And Jeff said, yes, yes, I did. So thank you, Jeff's dad, for shoving him away from getting by with a cobbled-together orchestra of two cellos and a violin into this awesome sonic spectacular. Which, uh, unfortunately, I'm sure was hell trying to replicate in concert. Yeah, there is that, and that's probably what Jeff might have been thinking doing those earlier albums where, okay, I got this song here, and we can record it, and it's going to be great, but I also got to think about reproducing this song in concert where I'm not going to have a full orchestra. So that might have limited him in those early albums about what he could do and still do it live. Fortunately, I guess at some point, he said, you know what, screw it. I mean, he's a, he's a studio right. he's a studio hermit. He loves working in the studio anyway. So I think this album was much more of a joy for him to work on and produce, since something like this, obviously, is going to take a lot of studio wizardry to make happen. Yeah, and um, by the way, I will get into, as we get as we get into the album, I'll probably get into some comparisons to some other literature and everything, because one of the best types of literature, fantasy literature I like, is when it's uh, exploring the world. Me too. I just, I've been dying to get to this album from the start so i'm i'm all in i'm all ready okay next Next week week we're we're going going to dive dive into a song that i can't get out of my head well try and crack open your head and see if we can release it okay we got nine can't get it out of my head and she liked it a lot and she still likes it a lot and one time in the car when the velvet revolver version came on she, like, almost right away, she was like, oh, that's get, get out of, get out of my head. It's like, yes. So, I've done my job well. Single version of the song. And I think, I wish I had looked before we started, I think this is the first time we see Kelly Groquette. Mike D'Albuquerque left after recording the album, and that's when Kelly came in. Yeah, Kelly's definitely in there. Right. It's the first appearance we get of Kelly Groquette. 
or is it Grocat? Uh, the first appearance we get of Kelly. I, I don't know how to pronounce it, to tell you the truth. We're going to need a listener out there to let us know how to pronounce Kelly's last name. I've been saying Grocut. We could just call him the Barefoot Bassist or something like that until we can figure out how to... T- <laughs> the the Chin Mutton Chops Bassist. Well, luckily we got until Face the Music to get his name right. Yeah, since there are no more videos from this album, so we'll figure it out. I mean, it was a hit. It was, I mean, And it wasn't just... It wasn't just where it just popped in at the top 40. Oh, here's your first hit. Number 30, whatever. This one actually went all the way into the top 10. I think it got to number 9. Number 9, yes. Number 9. Number 9. Yes, number 9. Yeah, number number 9. Yeah. So So that's a that's a pretty good first hit to get to get up to there. So. Right, especially since nothing none of their stuff had even charted in the top 40. No. Prior to this. Nope, not in America. Boy Blue. And also I don't think um I think if he was going to do the the opening classical part here in Boy Blue and if it was done like on the third day, I don't, you know, I think about the 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 reprise and the the Ocean Breakup Overture, where it didn't quite, you know, blend right into the next song. It just here it is, and then here's the next song, and I don't, it, you know, well, it, he didn't have the big orchestra, so it wouldn't have sounded as big and impressive and and right. just as as wonderful as it does here. Yeah, the trumpet part probably would have been played by Richard Tandy. It probably would have been a keyboard part instead. But Yeah. Poor boy. The Greenwood. Episode 036. What is episode 036? Poor boy. The Greenwood. Mr. Kingdom. Super zippy fast Wi-Fi in 1974. Definitely. On his Tandy desktop computer. The Univac. <laughs> that wasn't a desktop. Yeah. That no. was <laughs> more of a uh, building top. Yeah, that was computer. a... Computer. <laughs> or building basement. How I think it was probably a little bit too heavy to put on a floor other than the basement. Yeah, an entire story of a building, yeah. But anyways... It's like if you... So it, it, it's just like it's changed just a tiny bit. It's like if you added like, I don't know, a half a tiny teaspoon of butter to something else and it's it's it's, uh, you know what i'm gonna stop there because i'm going someplace i don't know where i'm going and i'm gonna completely cut that out so yeah you're going to last tango in paris and you're getting the butter which yes definitely we don't want to go there yeah so um i love the song of course it's on el dorado how can you not love it even if it does sound like across the universe well i loved across the universe anyway to me, uh, Yoko owns some of the rights to some of the songs. Paul just actually got back the rights to all the songs that Michael Jackson had swiped from him. That's right. So he just recently got all those back. So what Yoko doesn't own, Paul owns now. So basically, it's largely within the family. I wondered if it was in 74, though, or if Northern Songs pretty much owned them and that was it. Yeah, I think it was still Northern Songs and everything i think emi for the most part still own most of it at that particular point which if they did then that would say how this could i mean i know they weren't working directly with emi but i'm sure that because electric light orchestra probably had enough backing behind them that they could have just said oh, we're going to do this and here's some royalties yeah I, I don't think the publishing company is going to sue one of their own artists that's recording for one of their labels that they kind of own 
I don't know the details of Warner Brothers and UA back then. Yeah, UA was separate from EMI at the time, but I'm sure that, like I said, I'm sure I'm sure they probably worked out something because I never heard of any major lawsuit popping up because of Mr. Kingdom. No. It could be Christmas every day. Well, it's funny that you brought up Slade because from what I read at Wikipedia, uh, Slade's Christmas song uh, kept the this Chris this Wizard Christmas song from being number one, I think, on Christmas charts or something like that. Um, so it's, it's funny to bring that up. And I do like the Slade one better. But they do both kind of have that same sort of sound. But I think Slade did it b better. Even though I like Roy's a lot, too. Nobody's child. All the kids seem to think cassettes are great, and I never, ever liked them. I only used them because I had to, and iPods hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, they were very convenient at the time. <laughs> Yes. Yes. It was. Uh, it was a lot better to have three or four boxes of cassettes rattling around in the back of your vehicle than it was a tracks. Yes, with a bag of double A batteries to carry around too. Yep. One of my nostalgic trips to Tucson, where I literally took about four boxes of cassettes I'd recorded, mm -hmm. so I could have something to listen to on the stereo the whole time. Yep. All right. We're. I. Th I think we're probably done here because I think we're about to start drifting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Colorado. William Tell and Ivanhoe and Lancelot would not envy. Uh, with the uh, even with the emotion attached to it, I <laughs> is that you beeping or you me beeping? That that was my beeping. Okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't think there would be. I thought it was far enough away where it wasn't going to catch it. It's okay. It's on your end. So what? And it was happening while I was talking. So it, it would be okay. clipped out. Um, so we, with the emotion attached. Yes, actually. Uh, Jonathan Brandmeier was a DJ here. He was a morning guy at KZZP in the early '80s, and I really liked him. And then he went off to Chicago and became a big, big deal. Before he left Phoenix, he he used to do songs and he put out an album. And me and a friend were just playing around with the idea that Jonathan Brandmeier is dead. And we were just screwing around with his album, playing it backwards. And we heard on one of the songs, funny enough, the song was called Dead Donkeys. Okay. That one of the lines played backwards is, one voice says, I want to die. So there you go. That cinched it. We both knew it was silly, and we both laughed, but it was like, oh my god, there's the proof. Jonathan Brammeyer's actually dead. But of course he's not. Just his career. Yeah. <laughs> At this point. He'll still sue you, though. Maybe. Keep bad-mouthing him. Let's just say he's on a, a hiatus for a while. Stay yeah, on his yes. good side. Yeah, yeah. Like, like Donny Osmond has been on a hiatus for a number of years, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wonder how many backward messages there are in Donny Osmond. I don't know if I had much else. Nope, I nope, think I that's think about any point. We're in the Donny Osmond, so I think that's where we ended. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think a good place to stop was, was Donny Osmond. Yes. It's too bad it didn't stop before Donny. <laughs> hey, there is a good Osmond song. Colorado Finelli. It's still an excellent movie and a great alternate take on uh, the night world of 1984 is there is there nudity um 
I don't remember. I don't think there is. I think there might be some brief nudity. Brief nudity still counts. Yep. yep. <laughs> okay. But uh, but no, there's a lot of jo- there's a lot of jokes about bureaucracy, which is even better than nudity. It can be. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it depends on what you're looking for in a movie. Yeah. Which. <laughs> That's why people don't come over to my house for movie parties. <laughs> They're really stinging it to those accountants. Taste the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast, is a production of Radio Trolla Entertainment Assorted Deli Meats Amalgamated. You can contact us by voicemail at 623-850-3375 or email us at eloftmpodcast at gmail.com. Keep up to date on the show by joining our Facebook group and spread the word about the show by sharing the link or giving us a quick rating on iTunes. You can financially support the podcast and get some good at patreon.com slash ELO pod. Next week, episode 042, Fire on High. <laughs>